Ephesians 6 uh, uh, tell me that it's for my kids uh, spiritual and emotional and sometimes for their physical good when we're near a busy road uh, for them to respect me uh, to respect by what I say as they uh, learn to respect uh, me and my words as they trust them and obey them uh, I hope that they'll also learn uh, to respect God and his words so it's for my kids spiritual good Uh, that they uh, have appropriate respect for me, but also I want them to be deeply secure in my love for them. I want them to know that they can approach me at any time, that I'll listen to them, that I'll seek to care for them and nurture them, uh, that I'll show them real warmth, genuine warmth, tender affection. I want them to know those things about me. And that's really quite a hard balance as a parent, right? that balance between respect and love. And what we see in Malachi chapter 1 is that the people of Israel, God's children, aren't really clear on either of those things in their relationship with God. Respect or love. As you remember last week, back in verse 2, if you've got your Bible open, uh, God said to Israel, I have loved you, but Israel said, how have you loved us? That's not God's fault, right? but because of Israel's sin and their hard-heartedness and their apathy, uh, they're starting to question their father's love. And in today's passage, we see that they're not treating God their father with respect either. Not treating him with the honour that he deserves. Still, yes, they're going through the motions of their faith. They're they're ticking a whole bunch of religious boxes, turning up at the temple, offering sacrifices, saying prayers. We see all of that in this passage. Uh, But one thing is clear, they are way too casual in their relationship with God. They're not honouring and respecting him as he deserves. And as is often the case, which is a real challenge for me, this week and next week are really challenging passages for leaders, right? but the problem here, it's very clear, it starts at the top, the so-called leaders of God's people. So look in verse 6, Malachi says, it is you priests who show contempt for my name. It's bad enough when someone on the street who's perhaps not even a Christian, not openly not a part of God's people, it's bad enough when they show contempt for God's name. What a tragedy when a so-called leader of God's people is, is bringing God's name into disrepute, showing contempt for his name. The implication here is that the people of Israel are just following along with their leaders. They're no better. They're among the cheats of verse 14. They too are showing contempt for God's name. So in verse 6, Malachi explains what I've called there in the outline the catalyst for honouring God's name. It's really what should motivate Israel to be honouring God's name. Three things in this verse. The first is that they should honour God's name because he is their father. Look there, God says, a son honours his father. So if I am a father, where is the honour due me? This is not overly common in the Old Testament, but for example, in Exodus chapter 4, God said to, uh, told Moses to say to Pharaoh, Exodus 4 verse 22, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you to let my son go so that he might worship me. Right? Israel is God's son. So here God says, why don't you honour me as your father? We saw last week, God has chosen Israel, he's loved Israel, he's cared for Israel every step of the way. Why don't they now honour him as their father? Of course, there are plenty of fathers who aren't worthy of honour, who aren't worthy of respect at all. 
Perhaps some of you have a dad who's like that or who have had a dad, right? Fathers uh, who've been altogether absent, fathers who've been distant or aloof or, or exceptionally manipulative or harsh or, or just downright abusive. I know some of you have dads like that and you must know when you read this stuff about God being our father uh, that God is not like that. Right? God is the perfect father. We saw some of this last week, right? The father who chose you, chose you to be his child before the creation of the world. The father who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bleed and die for you, that he might have you as his child, because he knew you'd be rebellious, but he wanted to bring you back to himself. The father who's with you and cares for you every step of the way, every moment of your life. The father uh, who you don't have to compete to get a moment of his time, but who wants to spend eternity with you. In God, we have the perfect father. Israel has the perfect father. So what a tragedy that even their priests, right? those who would have stood in the temple teaching the Ten Commandments, honour your father and your mother. What a tragedy that even these priests aren't honouring God as their father. And the people of Israel are just following after them. Second, they should honour God as their father. Uh, They should honour God because he is their master. You see that there in verse 6, a son honours his father and a slave his master. So if I'm a master, where is the respect due me? Right in Malachi's day, it was just assumed that a slave would respect their master. After all, the master had paid the price to have that slave as his own. Why did the slave ought to respect his master? Likewise, God has paid a price to have Israel as his own people, his treasured possession. You remember, he, he paid the price to set them free from Egypt, to bring them back from exile. Israel was his treasured possession. He was Israel's master. So where is their respect for God? They refuse to respect God as their master. And third, they refuse to honour God as their Lord Almighty. This is all throughout this passage, right? Seven, uh, seven times, or maybe eight times, but in nine verses, God refers to himself as the Lord Almighty. If you want to go through, you can underline or circle them, right? Uh, sometimes, uh, depending on your Bible translation, uh, that's translated as the Lord of hosts, right? The Lord, the Lord of armies. Uh, the point here is that Israel's God uh, is sovereign. He rules over every heavenly host. Right? He's got myriads of angels uh, that, that will just do his beck and call whenever he wants. Uh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, the Lord Almighty rules over every earthly army, every king and general and troop. He rules over everything and he raises them up to use them for his purposes in his time and place. He is the Lord Almighty. You would think Israel would respect the Lord Almighty. And yet they don't. They had every reason to honour God. He was their father, their master, their Lord Almighty. Uh, but instead, they're showing contempt for his name. Uh, what exactly does that mean, to, to show contempt for God's name? Well, uh, throughout the Bible, God's name uh, isn't just kind of his last name, you know, or taking the Lord's name in vain, for example. That's, we might be familiar with that. Uh, but throughout the Bible, God's name refers to his character and his presence. Uh, so uh, you might, if you're a quick Bible flicker, you might want to flick to Exodus chapter 34. Uh, Exodus 34, God uh, proclaims his name uh, to Moses here. Exodus 34 from verse 5. 
And we see here, uh, this is what we read. Uh, the Lord came down in, in the cloud, in a glorious cloud, and he stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, this is God's name, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. This is the glory of God's name here. God's name is the glory of his character. So showing contempt for God's name is not just being a bit careless with your words. Oh, whoops, I used the Lord's name in vain. No, that is showing contempt for God's name. But showing contempt for God's name here is kind of despising the very character of who God is, the very essence of who he is. And showing contempt for God's name is to show contempt for his glorious presence. In 1 Kings chapter 8, uh, God promised, or God had promised, uh, that his glory, his, the glory of his name would dwell in the temple. So if you read it, in 1 Kings uh, chapter 8, King Solomon's praying that at the dedication of the temple, this grand ceremony, and from verse 27, uh, he says, But will God really dwell on earth? Are the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain God? Uh, how much less this temple I have built? Yet give attention to your servant's prayer and his plea for mercy, Lord my God. Hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying in your presence this day. May your eyes be open toward this temple, Solomon says, night and day, this place of which you have said, my name shall dwell there. So that you will hear the prayer of your ser- uh, that your servant prays toward this place. So you see, when God says that these priests are showing contempt for his name, he's saying that they are acting in a way, behaving in a way, that shows a complete disregard for the glory of both his character and his presence. Here they are in the very temple where God's presence dwells, and they're making a mockery of who he is, mockery of his character, of his holiness, of his glory. So you'd think after the priests are confronted with this accusation that they'd be a bit sorry, right? You'd think that perhaps they'd repent, they'd be sackcloth and ashes, that they'd ask for God's help. Uh, But no, uh, have a look there. These priests choose to debate with God. How have we shown contempt for your name? Uh, So look, verse 7, verses 7 and 8. God says, well, let me me spell it out for you. Here's the stuff you've been doing that shows contempt for my name. The specific conduct. Have a look in verse 7. You've shown contempt for my name by offering defiled food on my altar. Again, the priests question God, how have we defiled you? So God says, uh, by saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? So these priests are showing contempt for God's name by offering these defiled sacrifices, blemish sacrifices, right? animals that are blind and lame and diseased. And that might seem a bit strange to us. Right? What's God got, got against? Animals with disabilities or kind of defective animals, you know, like we're all about the rights of the, you know, right? Well, what's with this? Right? But these priests should have known better, right? They should have known that they knew the law, they taught God's law, 
So they should have known that God's warning in Leviticus chapter 22. God had specifically said, do not bring sacrifices to me with a defect because they will not be accepted on your behalf. Uh, verse 21, Exodus 20, uh, Leviticus 22. When anyone brings from the herd or flock a fellowship offering to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or as a freewill offering, it must be without defect or blemish to be acceptable. And this, this is the kicker, right? Do not offer to the Lord the blind, the injured or the maimed or anything with warts or festering or running sores. Do not place any of these things on the altar as a food offering presented to the Lord. Why? Why is God so finicky about this? Well, look, Exodus 22, verse 31, Keep my commands and follow them. I am the Lord. Verse 32, Do not profane my holy name, for I must be acknowledged as holy by the Israelites. Right, these priests should have known that they were supposed to bring their best to God. Right? Sacrifices that were without blemish, that were perfect. Right? But why was that important? It was to put on display the full perfection of God's holiness. Otherwise, Israel would start to be flippant with God's presence. Thinking anyone can just waltz in there with some defective sacrifice. No, God is perfect. He's glorious. He's holy. So the priests should have known this. They should be offering perfect sacrifices. God warns them so that all of Israel might acknowledge that he is holy. Instead, these priests are bringing their worst to God. Right? Sacrificing animals that would have died soon anyway. Right? That's the reality. They're not making any real sacrifice at all. And that's the point, right? Because it's financially they're coming out ahead. They're doing the maths, right? If we offer these animals, we can still make money off the healthy ones. So in verse 8, God says, Try offering those sacrifices to your governor. Do you think he'd be pleased with you? Of course, Israel would never have dared offer these sacrifices to, to a governor uh, or to any earthly ruler, any superior of any kind. Yet here they are offering them to God, their father, their master, their Lord Almighty. Now, this is their worship, their, their service of God. What about our worship? In our worship, I know, I know worship's 24-7, you give your whole life, you lay your whole life down for God. But what about our worship, particularly on Sundays when we come to gather together at the church, like the Israelites were gathering at the temple? I wonder if we're trying to offer things to God that we would never dare offer to our boss to our lecturer, to our coach. I wonder if we're giving God our best or giving God our scraps, our leftovers, the bits we're okay with sparing. Oh, there's lots of ways, angles you could take on this, but I wonder, do we arrive on time for worship? I can't imagine any of us running late if we had a meeting with the Queen or the Prime Minister or even with our boss, right? We're there right on time. But lots of us routinely run late for church. That says something. I mean, life happens. Sometimes we'll run late. I wonder if we're attentive in church, kind of showing an eagerness to listen, and, uh, to, to, listen to learn, or, or perhaps we give ourselves full permission to tune out to daydream, to even to have a nap perhaps. 
I can't imagine myself daydreaming if I had a meeting with a local politician. If I was meeting with a businessman or, or a school principal. When we come to church, I, I wonder if we're eager to hear God's word. To hear God's, uh, the voice of the Lord Almighty, to hear his word read and preached and sung and prayed. Are we eager to hear? Are we praying in preparation? Are we looking up uh, the, the Bible passage during the week so that we're ready to hear God's word? Because I reckon if we had the opportunity to listen to our favourite band or comedian or activist, we would be hanging off every word. You'd, be, you'd have the albums of that band out the, the, the whole month in the lead up so that you could be, have those words fresh in your mind so you go to the gig and you can sing along with everyone. Massive preparation. Yet we rock up to hear the voice of the Lord Almighty well, we don't owe anything to God. God's lucky that I'm here. When we offer God our worst, our, our scraps, our leftovers, it really does not show God the honour and respect that he deserves. That's challenging. So in verses 9 and 10, God declares some of the consequences of showing contempt for his name. Have a look there. First, uh, there's unanswered prayer. Malachi says to the priest, Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands, will he accept you? Well, this is basically a dare from Malachi. Well, why don't you ask God? Ask God for something. Ah, see if he'll bless you. See if he'll be gracious to us. Of course, Malachi knows that God won't. God won't answer their prayers. He won't answer the prayers they're offering with their mouths because the sacrifices they're offering with their hands dishonour his name, show contempt for his name. Right? That, that isn't something we like to talk about very much. I think that this idea that uh, perhaps the success of our prayers is, is actually connected to the godliness of our lives. The Bible often makes this connection, actually. Psalm 66, verse 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened to me. Proverbs 15, verse 29 says, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayers of the righteous. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear you. Uh, I think our first response, if our prayers aren't being answered, uh, perhaps should, should not be to accuse God of failing to keep his word, but to examine ourselves to see if we're failing to keep his word. Now that doesn't mean, I don't want to hear me wrong, it doesn't mean we have to be perfect for God to answer our prayers. That's, that's not what I'm saying. But it does mean that if we, if we cherish sin or, or just tolerate sin, if we're casual about sin in our life, it will hinder our relationship with God. A guy named John Benton puts it like this. He says, God's answering our prayers does not depend on our being sinless. If that were the case, no one would have their prayers answered for none of us is perfect this side of heaven. We get that. However, God's hearing our prayers does depend on us being serious about our fight against sin. It's not the presence of sin, but uh, the toleration of sin. 
which shuts down communication with heaven. And it's the same in, in 1 Peter 3. This is a challenge for us blokes. You know, in, in 1 Peter 3, I'm going off script here, I can't remember off the top of my head, but 1 Peter 3, where Peter says uh, to husbands, do not be, hard, uh, be, be uh, considerate of your wives as the weaker vessel, because if you are harsh with them, it will hinder your prayers. If your prayers aren't being answered, in, you're in a marriage. Maybe you're being harsh with your wife. You might need to examine yourself and repent of that. That's Malachi's point here. These priests can't expect God to answer their prayers because they're blatantly living in unrepentant sin. Right? Sin uh, that dishonours the holy name of their God. So Malachi says, ask God for things. You see, he won't, be, he won't be gracious to you. So there's unanswered prayer. And in verse 10, uh, there's useless worship. Have a look there. God says, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Right? As far as God's concerned, that the worship of his people is useless. Right? God would much rather than just shut the doors of the temple. No worship would be a whole lot better than this useless worship. I think sometimes we have the idea uh, that God is desperately in need of our worship. Like I said before, so that we're kind of, God's kind of there uh, on the side of the street with a little tin and a sign, please worship me, and we turn up on Sunday and put a little bit of worship in, and, and we're doing God a favour, because God, God's like, he's desperate for our worship. He, he needs our worship. But A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, If every man on earth became blind, it would not diminish the glory of the sun, the moon, and the stars. And if every person on earth turned atheist, it would not diminish the glory of God. God does not need our worship. In Acts 17, verse 25, Paul says, And God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Psalm 50, I love these verses. Psalm 50, verses 9 to 12, God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I know every bird in the mountain and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Right? God does not have any need from us. He does not need our worship. It's not like he's so desperate for our worship that any worship will do, you see. That's a big thing. God not only tells us, not only commands us to worship him, but he tells us how he wants us to worship him. There is some worship that is useless, he says. I prefer you to shut the doors of that church than to go on with this useless worship. And in John 4, verse 23, Jesus tells us what kind of worship our God wants. Our Father seeks. It's worship that is in spirit and in truth. That's the kind of worship is the Father seeking, Jesus says. And to worship God in spirit is to worship him with a heart that is genuinely born again by God's spirit. Right? That's what Jesus spoke about in John 3, just before this passage in John 4. Uh, and uh, So that our worship of God uh, comes from a, a genuine sense that our hearts are alive and that our spirits, the deepest part of who we are, are having an encounter with God who is spirit. 
There's a, there's a real encounter, a real relationship, a real enjoyment of God. Real spiritual life and engagement. And to worship God in truth is to have our worship directed to Christ, who in John's Gospel, John 14, verse 6, is the way, the truth, and the life. John 1, Jesus came full of grace and truth. That's what it means for our worship to be full of truth. It's to be directed to Christ and it's to have our worship governed by and shaped and absolutely saturated by God's word, the truth of God's word. Because God not only tells us to worship him, he tells us how to worship him. God is holy and glorious and we don't just waltz into his presence whatever way we want. We come through the means that he's provided, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the way that he's directed and the people of Israel had forgotten that. Right? Jesus says, this is the kind of worship that his father seeks. Worship that is in spirit and in truth. Not uh, just any worship, not useless worship, not, not scraps, not lip service, but worship that is in spirit and in truth. So those are the two consequences. Unanswered prayer, uh, useless worship, and then in verse 11, God uh, kind of reiterates his commitment to honouring his name. Have a look there. He says, my name will be great among the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me. Because my name will be great among the nations. This is great, God's great purpose for his world, that, that he is absolutely committed to bringing glory to his name. His name will be great. It will be glorified. It's his name that will be up in lights, God says. And of course, some people think that's very selfish of God. But if it's selfish for you and I to seek our own glory, surely the creator of the universe would be even better. It would be selfish of him to seek his own glory. Uh, of course, the difference is, and I hate to break this to you, uh, but you and I are not God, you see. God is God. God designed uh, this, his world. He designed us to, to live and thrive and flourish, not in a world that revolves around us and our glory, but in a world that revolves around him and his glory. So it's actually the ultimate act of love, of selflessness for God to seek his own glory. It's for the good of our humanity. It's for the good of his world that his name be great, that his name be glorified among the nations. And so God is essentially saying to these priests, if you and your people refuse to glorify me, I'll find other people who will glorify me. I don't think I'm limited to Israel, God says. Either way, I will be glorified. People from across the globe, from where the sun rises to where it sets, will worship me, God says. I will have my glory. But of course, even though God's committed to glorifying his name, verses 12 and 13, God repeats his charge against these priests. What are they doing? They're, first, they're profaning God's name. Another way of talking about contempt, but... He says, but you priests profane my name by saying the Lord's table is defiled and its food is contemptible. That word profane, we, talk, we maybe only talk about profanities. That's the same kind of origin. But the word profane there in Hebrew relates to the word for piercing, for wounding something, 
So the idea here is that uh, these priests, by offering these defiled sacrifices, uh, are causing real damage to the glory of God's name. Real damage. They're wounding it, trampling the glory of God's name, profaning his name. And in verse 13, uh, they're also expressing weariness at God's name. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously. So you get the idea. For these priests, they're serving away in the temple, making sacrifices for God, day in, day out. And for them, serving God had become a burden, an onerous thing, a duty, right? Not a privilege, not a joy, not a delight, but a burden. God even accuses them of sniffing at his service. Right? That's not because they've all got, kind of picked up a cold. Like, right? Sniffing here is a bit like if you ask someone, oh, you know, how's work? And they go, oh, no, don't ask. The eye roll, the, the, the eyes of contempt. You can tell they hate their work. They hate their boss. That's what these priests are like when it comes to serving God. And we've got to guard our hearts against this from seeing our service of God, our sacrifices for God uh, as just a burdensome duty. Right, what we really want to be doing uh, is being at home watching TV, but hey, will we slug it out for a couple of hours on Sunday? We've got to guard our hearts against that kind of thing. It's a privilege, a joy to serve the living God. So in verse 14, God starts announcing his, uh, his curse against these priests. So we'll get a whole lot more of this next week, but uh, his curse for showing contempt for his name. He says, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. I think the priests are the centre of this. Probably there's plenty of cheats who aren't among the official priesthood, right, offering these blemished sacrifices. And the point here is that God is great and good and just. He's a great king over the nations, and there's no way he can just turn a blind eye to the sin of these priests. They must be punished. Right? He says here they have to bear the curse of God's judgment. And I reckon, I mean, I read this this week, and I read the next passage, which is even harder for me as a pastor. But that that really should cause us to shudder. Because in our own ways, all of us, every day, have shown contempt for God's name. We too deserve this curse of God's judgment. We do. Of course, the the wonderful news of Christianity is God has found a way to to put on display the full glory of his name, the full glory of his character through the Lord Jesus Christ and his death on the cross. Earlier, I read those verses from Exodus chapter 34. I read them again. God proclaims uh, the glory of his name to Moses. Uh, I'll I'll read it from verse 5. The Lord, the Lord, uh, the compassionate and gracious God, He's slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God is merciful, 
full of mercy and grace and compassion. Wonderful. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and the children uh, and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. So, so God, the glory of God's character is seen in both his perfect mercy and his perfect justice. Right? And those two threads are left hanging in the Old Testament until they come together at the cross of our Lord Jesus, isn't it? That's the only place where the perfect mercy and justice of God are put on full display. Right? At the cross, God glorifies his justice. Because Christ pays the full penalty for our sins on the cross. right? He, he bears the, the full curse of God's judgment, judgment. Cursed is the one, the law said, who hangs on a tree. Christ bears that. And so the cross glorifies God's mercy because in Christ paying the full penalty for our sins, all that's left for us is God's compassion and grace and mercy. So in trusting in Christ, we who've shown contempt for God's name, who've dishonoured his name, can be welcomed like Israel into his family as his children. And so filled with his spirit, we can relate to our God as our Father. But it does mean that we have two quite different sets of feelings when we relate to our God, or at least we should have. On the one hand, uh, when we relate to God, well, we should have feelings of real security, of intimacy, of, of comfort, of tenderness, of friendship. On the other hand, we should have real fe- uh, feelings of reverence, of honour, of trembling, of fear, of awe. And typically, oh, I think we struggle to put those two things together. We're either way too casual in our relationship with God bit like Israel in this passage, or we're way too formal. We couldn't ever comprehend the idea that God would be tender towards us or compassionate or merciful, you see. But the Bible puts these things together all the time. So Psalm 25 verse 14 says, uh, the Lord confides in those. Right? He shares intimate friendship with those who fear him. Friendship and fear, right right next to it. How is that the case? It's not terrifying fear or paralyzing fear, as if God's going to lash out at us at any moment, perhaps like some of you have experienced from your earthly fathers. Right? It's not that. It's the appropriate reverence and honor and respect that comes from knowing that your loving Heavenly Father is also your Lord Almighty. So you treat him with respect, with honour. Right? Another example is Isaiah 66, verse 2. You can look later on if you like. But it says, uh, These are the ones that I look on with favour, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Right? So you want God's special favour, his blessing. You want Him to, the warmth of his smile to be upon your life. That's, that's the picture here. His face to be turned towards you in blessing. Well, you're humble, you're contrite, you tremble at his word. It's a bit like the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? This is how Jesus taught us to pray. God is our Father, our Father. So we should be absolutely secure in his love. Confident, comforted, he's tender towards us, he loves us. But he's our Father where? He's our Father in heaven. So we approach him with honour and respect and awe. 
I want to finish by, by praying a prayer that's uh, it's sort of in part based on uh, a prayer that uh, the American pastor John Piper wrote. I read it during the week. I think if you'd pray with me, that let's pray. Uh, our Father in heaven, uh, we do come before you in fear and trembling uh, because we know we have often lived in ways that have dishonoured your name have shown contempt for your name. Father, we praise you that you have glorified your name in and through the death of our Lord Jesus. Oh, that he, Father, bore the fullness of your glorious justice so that we might experience the fullness of your glorious mercy and grace and compassion. And so we pray, Father, as your dearly loved children, that you would help us to honour your name by relating to you with, with an appropriate mix of bold brokenness, of relaxed reverence, of friendly fear, of tender trembling, and of deeply affectionate awe. Our Father, we pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.